Everyone knows what confidence feels like. Everyone has at least one or two scenarios in their life where they feel that way. So it's not about learning how to be confident. It's about unlocking that same version of you in a scenario where you do feel confident in a new context. Welcome to NPS I Love You, a podcast powered by Catalyst. I'm your host, Ben Wynn, and this show is all about awesome people, ideas, and stories, all with a customer success twist. On NPS I Love You, I talk to everyone from artists to scientists, CEOs to CSMs, and everyone in between to give you powerful insights that will help you in your career and in life. Eric Silverberg and Eli Gladstone are the brilliant founders behind Speaker Labs, a leading public speaking coaching program. In this episode, Eric, Eli, and I discuss the science of talk, the power of storytelling, the biggest barriers people face when public speaking, and some ways you can think about improving your next presentation today. Tell us a little bit about Speaker Labs. Why'd you guys start it and what is it? Great question. So Speaker Labs is a public speaking training company. We get out there and we teach people how to become amazing public speakers. Most of the time we work with companies and we train their employees and their staff, but sometimes we train individuals. We just launched an online course, so we're trying to teach people how to be amazing public speakers in a whole bunch of different ways right now. And I think, I mean, on my end, I wanted to start Speaker Labs for a couple reasons. Number one is that I had my own journey from becoming a horrible public speaker to a pretty good public speaker. And I just in retrospect, I realized what went into that transformation. And I sort of thought to myself, anyone can do this. Anyone can be an amazing public speaker. So part of it for me was I want other people to have that same sort of transformation, the same realizations when it comes to public speaking that I had. And then the other reason was, I mean, we might talk more about this, but Eli and I, I'm Eric, by the way, the other guy who who you'll hear speak in a second is Eli. The other reason is that Eli and I started our careers as professors at Western, the university that we graduated from, and we absolutely fell in love with teaching. And so, you know, we went to work in tech for a little while, but I always, I always wanted to scratch that teaching bug again. So starting a teaching company seemed like a pretty decent way to get back into the teaching world, but not under the umbrella of academia. I'm excited to hear what the transformation was and dig into that. If it was like an all of a sudden epiphany or was this sort of like a gradual over time you picked up things? I think it was a little bit of both. Public speaking growth is, I think with like any other soft skill, there's no finish line. So I'm always picking up things even today, even though now I literally teach people how to public speak. But there was also a transformational moment. I can tell you more about that in a second. I can tell you more about that right now, actually. We'll have Eli, I guess, introduce, <laughs> we'll have, should we get Eli to introduce himself or should I tell you that story immediately? Yeah, I didn't know if it was going to be a long one or a short one. So let's go to Eli because I'm, I'm curious to hear his side of things and if he was also a terrible public speaker at one point. And then uh, we'll get more into the origin story. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think Eric's story was more one of started week grew and became awesome. I think mine was a little bit more, I always was fairly decent at public speaking, but always felt awful about it. And so it was a bit of a disconnect between how I was showing up externally and how I felt internally. And when I came to the the sort of realization of I'm actually doing better at this than I thought, and it's my headspace that's holding me back from optimizing rather than my skill set, 
that was a big realization for me. So it wasn't so much that my capability grew that substantially, although over time it has continued to develop and I have gotten a lot better from a skill set perspective. But for me, it was I always had a decent natural communication ability, but you would put me in a high stakes scenario like public speaking and I would just feel awful. I was scared. I was worried about judgment. I always thought that people were going to find out that I was a complete imposter. And I had a lot of those inner monologue issues that I think a lot of people have. And as I started to overcome those, I realized that there was so much value in my personal life to be able to change my relationship to that inner voice. And that's part of why I started to fall in love with public speaking as both a skill that's high leverage in your career, but also as an outlet for just general personal growth. And that's part of the reason that I wanted to start Speaker Labs. So I think for both Eric and I, we both love teaching, having started our careers in academia. We both leveraged speaking in our careers, both in academia, but also when we worked in tech, we found communication and public speaking and presentation skills were huge value adds to what we were doing. We both also wanted to become entrepreneurs. And we talked about entrepreneurship a lot over the course of our friendship and time working together. But for me, it was also about, I just found so much joy in overcoming my own psychological inhibitions. And I wanted to help other people do that, as well as build the skills that help people improve at public speaking. I love that element of it, that it's really all those emotions that you mentioned before about having that inner inner monologue and you know whether it's lack of confidence or not being in the right headspace, all those things are definitely critical to be a good speaker, but they're they go way beyond that and they dictate your performance at work and how you are when you show up to a salary negotiation and literally everything that involves communicating anything with other people, you know, requires feeling good about, you know, feeling in the right headspace and and not having that kind of sabotaging inner monologue. So that's really awesome to hear. And I'm excited to dig more into that. Cool. It's funny you mentioned it. We actually, I remember one time Eric and I were running a, a group workshop and at the end of the program, someone came up to us and was like, guys, I'm on to you. And we were like, what do you mean? What is this saying? And they looked at us and they said, you don't have a public speaking course. You have a fear course disguised as a public speaking Uh. course. It's kind of true. I mean, we teach a lot of skills that go into public speaking, but we also spend a lot of our time focusing on how to overcome fear. And we just use public speaking as a lens through which to do that. I love that. That's really cool. And it sounds like an awesome course. Maybe you'll get, uh, maybe that'd be a big bump in sales, you just change it to like a fear course. Everyone wants <laughs> to take that. But yeah, it's it's definitely, I mean, lots of people, it's one of the most common fears pe- probably people have, especially in the business world is getting up. You're either, the, you know, the one kind of person, like, I mean, I put myself in that category that just loves being the center of attention. So any opportunity to be in front of people, great. But there's also a majority of people who who do have a fear of that and it impacts in all kinds of ways. So just conquering that fear is definitely a huge thing. I'm curious to go back to uh, Eric, what I was uh, drilling in with you on, on uh, sort of your transformation from going from, you know, not being a confident public speaker to being at the level you are today, and whether that was sort of an all at once thing or, or gradual, uh, can you point to or like looking back, can you recognize a couple specific moments or learnings that really changed your mentality or really were that catalyst, forgive the pun, for uh making that progress? Yeah, for sure. I can identify one moment and it's a pretty decent segue from what you and Eli were just talking about. And I think this is true with basically everyone is that the difference between amazing public speakers and aspiring public speakers 
is their mindset. It's their relationship with their nervousness and their fear and all those psychological constraints. And so that same thing happened to me where I sort of overcame all of that. In retrospect, it really was in one single moment. So when I was graduating from business school, I mean, we might dive more into this. Eli and I have identical career paths and we already mentioned that we started our careers as professors at the university. And when I got that job, I was so excited, but I was absolutely terrified because a professor is a full-time public speaker and I was not a good public speaker and I was a fearful public speaker. I was the type of person when I was in undergrad that, you know, I would hide behind my cue cards and read my presentations instead of making eye contact. And I would, if I was in a group project, try to get my group members to do the majority of the presentation so I didn't need to speak that much. And then here I was, I'm now hired to pack lecture halls every day. And the very first class that I had to teach was a three-hour lecture on finance and managerial accounting. And I remember the night before I was preparing incessantly because I was so afraid. I barely slept the morning of the of the class. I was literally nauseous, feeling sick to my stomach. I didn't even enter the lecture hall until five minutes after class was supposed to start because I was so afraid. And then I got up to the front of the room for this very first class. And I swear I must have been all red and visibly shaking. And then I don't know what came over me, but I decided to put my class notes down and I looked out at my students and I just screamed with my arms out, good morning, everyone. (laughs) And it really was a transformational moment because I realized, holy shit, this is really, really easy. Being an amazing public speaker it doesn't require superpowers. I didn't just do anything that no one else is capable of. I could have been doing it that way all along. Right. The difference was this time I made a real big decision to just show up the same way that I thought all my favorite public speakers show up. You know, if you picture like mm-hmm. Oprah giving away cars or giving away vacations on her show, all she's doing is yelling. And I don't know how it crystallized <laughs> to me in that moment, but anyone can yell. So I just sort of tried it. And in that moment, I found my confidence. And I would say that, you know, I've been growing ever since. But that transformation moment sort of just changed everything for good. Definitely. I mean, I can see picture many startled students with you (laughs) screaming in in the front few rows. But and incidentally, I also would get nausea before my accounting classes, but uh, for different (laughs) reasons. So yeah, so I I wanted to, uh, I was curious, because i from going through your website and looking at some of your stuff, I mean, you guys talk about the the science of talk. I love kind of learning about human behavior and this sort of stuff is is all this what I can nerd out about all the time. So I'm really curious to have you guys unpack that. What do you mean when you talk about the science of talk? That's such a loaded question because it means a lot of different things in general, but also to us. I think the best way I could address it is science sort of as a discipline in general is about describing what's happening in reality and why it's happening. Mm -hmm. And I think when we first sat down to hone in on our curriculum and figure out what we were going to be teaching people and, and identify the most value adding things we could do, we kind of took that lens. We have to describe what works, but we also have to describe why it works. And Mm -hmm. if we're missing either one of those two things, it's an incomplete story. And so I think that's an element of, of the science of talk, describing what and why. There's also the, we incorporate a lot of science into our curriculum, whether it's hard sciences like 
neuroscience or evolutionary biology or the soft sciences like psychology and sociology. We incorporate a lot of that stuff into our curriculum. And then I'd say the, the ultimate thing is science sort of has this approach of like hypothesize, test and iterate. Right. And we had that approach to building our curriculum. We hypothesize things, we would research it, we'd test things out and we'd see what kind of results we would get. But also when we're teaching people, we also present our stuff not as this is the objective right way to do things, but this is our hypothesis about what's effective and now go test it out and see what works for you. And I think in science, in the same way that Isaac Newton had a great theory for gravity, and then years later, Einstein comes along and has a better theory for gravity, the relativity-based theory for gravity, and who knows when the next theory of gravity is going to emerge that might even take Einstein's off its pedestal. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have some late nights trying to crack that one. Then I believe <laughs> in you. <laughs> So when we present our curriculum, we also try to teach it in a way where we're saying this is our best answer that we can come up with right now, but don't take this as universal truth. These are hypotheses that we've put a lot of time into researching and trying to test and validate, but we're not naive to think that we have come up with a mathematical formula for public speaking, but rather we have hypotheses that we think are helpful and that we encourage you to test out. That's awesome. I love the approach and the iterative approach and the unique approach, right? Because I'm sure everyone has their own style that works for them in terms of how they speak or yell. <laughs> so in terms, can you give me a couple, like even just a, a taste of a couple specific, maybe stats or facts or things that people might be surprised by when it comes to the science of talk, whether it's attention span or things like that. I'm curious to, to have a couple examples of that. The foundation of our course is based on how audiences receive communication. You know, we tried to answer for ourselves when we were building our course, what is it that makes some public speakers resonate with seemingly any audience of any size and other people can't get their ideas across to basically anyone ever? And we looked at how audiences receive communication from a neuroscientific perspective. And what we found in our research, and I think everyone knows this sort of just viscerally anyways, is that the way the human brain works when they're receiving communication or when they're observing anything is that people feel first and think second. The emotional centers of our brain, the limbic system, they're stronger and they're what we fall back on more than, you know, the parts of our brain that try to do math and try to think and try to solve problems. And so that's one of the things scientifically that we chat about in our course is sort of the foundation, which is that the best public speakers recognize that if you're not emotionally appealing to your audience, you're not going to have the impact that you probably want to have. So adding emotion to your public speaking engagements, whether that's through your delivery or your content or whatever it might be, that's what we focus on. And that's what we think sets apart the amazing public speakers from everyone else. So that's one example of how neuroscience sort of fits in, you know, neuroscientifically, how do people receive communication? And how can we as public speakers take advantage of that knowledge in order to make ourselves present better? So that's one example. I love that. Did uh, any other kind of facts or areas come to mind that, that on the science side that you can share? Sure. We talked about fear at the beginning of this, and fear is obviously a huge element in, in public speaking growth. And when Eric and I were building our curriculum, we first started to go down the rabbit hole of public speaking fear, 
But eventually we, we realized that if we're going to help people overcome this, we need to start researching fear in general. Mm. And that took us down a, a deep path into understanding the sort of nervous system and what's happening biologically. It took us down a path of understanding sort of the evolutionary biology of fear, particularly from a communication perspective. And one of the most interesting things, I mean, this is a loaded subject and there's a lot in there, but I'll try to share one of the things that Eric and I find super fascinating is as we started to research fear, we learned something interesting that sticks in my mind always, which is at its base, fear is just a threat response mechanism. That's what its purpose is. It evolved into organisms as a way to prime the organism to respond to a threat, whether it's by running away or fighting or playing dead. It's just a threat response mechanism. And as we started to dig into that a little bit more, we realized that the fear threat response mechanism, it actually responds to two types of threats. It responds to real threats, but it also responds to perceived threats. Right. A real threat is like a tiger in the bushes. That is a very real threat to your survival. But fear also responds to a rustle in the bushes mm -hmm. that it thinks that could be a tiger, right. even if it could also just be wind. And fear responds in both of those scenarios. And as we came to that understanding, that was super empowering to us when we started to map it back to public speaking. Because then we got to ask ourselves the question of, is public speaking a real threat? Is it a tiger? Or is it a perceived threat? Is it most of the time just wind? Right. And that was a really, really empowering question for us because no matter how deeply we tried to scrutinize it, the answer always came back to it's a perceived threat. People think failure is awful, but then everyone has also heard the advice, failure is okay and it's a part of success, not the opposite of success. People think that judgment is bad, but then people also know deep down that it's impossible to have every single human being you encounter like you or everything you say. And so no matter how much we inspected this question and tried to come up with there are real risks to public speaking, there are not. There are perceived threats and that's it. Sure, there's non-ideal outcomes. Sure, there's negative things that can happen, but none of them are huge threats to your survival. And that helps almost defang public speaking a little bit and allow people to show up a little bit more effectively and tap into whatever skills they have, even if they haven't invested time in improving their skill set at that point. Yeah, we've got a lot of data to support that too. We've been running our workshops now for almost five years. And in all of our workshops, we get people up to the front of the room public speaking. And, you know, till now, there's probably been thousands of people that have publicly spoken in our programs. And so far, zero deaths. <laughs> and I think that's a pretty good data point. You should be very proud. Uh, yeah, we, we are very proud of that of that stat here at Speaker Labs. Yeah, that's a yeah. good data point for this is just perceived threat stuff, right? There is no threat to yes. your survival. Your fear says there is, but there isn't. And you know, more on Eli's point, there are a few different ways to overcome fear, but one of the ways is to really understand your fear. And so we did the research so our students wouldn't have to, and we really get into that science behind why you're afraid of public speaking to begin with, because we find it's ubiquitous across everyone. You know, not everyone has the same severity of fear. Not everyone is afraid of the same contexts, but everyone has some level of fear when it comes to public speaking. Definitely. That's awesome. I mean, I know we could probably do a whole podcast just on going back onto the... Uh, the science of it all and the evolution of it all. And that it is fascinating, but I want to get to so maybe more a bit more of tactical stuff that listeners can test out for themselves or possibly take away. So I wanted to ask, what are some of the most common public speaking mistakes that you guys see with people, especially on the, in a business context? You preface the question by saying you wanted to get tactical and we can get tactical, but I'll share a more 
theoretical and perspective-based answer first. I think the most common mistake, probably number one, most common mistake that we see people make when it comes to public speaking or high stakes presentations in a business context is thinking that there's a right way to do it. Eric and I have seen so many different kinds of public speakers throughout running our workshops, let alone in the thousands upon thousands of hours of TED Talks and YouTube videos and presentations that we've researched to try to identify patterns. And one thing that we've become increasingly certain of is there is not a right way to public speak. There is speaking effectively and there's speaking ineffectively, but the ways to speak effectively are infinite. And that's why someone like Steve Jobs, who's quite calm and methodical and precise and like super analytical and cerebral, is hyper effective. But so is someone like Oprah, who's over the top and bordering on obnoxious some of the time. It's because there is a right way to public speak. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oprah, if you're listening to this, I love you. I hope Oprah's listening to this. That's wonderful. Me too. Yeah. I think people often look at their their business presentations and they think this is business, therefore I must be hyper-professional. Right. And Eric and I find that, sure, if you are someone who identifies with that, then sure, be hyper-professional. But if you're someone who is a bit more casual, then lean into the casualness. If you are comfortable with how you are, then your audience will be comfortable with how you are, regardless of what they may have a slight preference for. Yes, a million times yes. <laughs> I, I, like, I think that's, <laughs> that's such important insight and, and with speaking and just existing in the world. Like it's, you know, if you're comfortable with yourself or certain aspects of yourself, then pretty much people around you have that same reaction. Whereas if you're uncomfortable putting something across, then other people are going to be uncomfortable receiving that information as well. So it's, Pretty much like what you put out there, you get back. You just said that better than we could. We should just hire Ben, Eli, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. My job on podcasts is to repeat back what smarter people say to me, and then that way I can bask in the uh, the reflected glory. Yeah, got it. (laughs) Another common mistake, I think, is, you know, people, when they try to become a better public speaker, one of the first things they do is they Google it, and they come across these top 10 lists for, you know, these tips and tricks for how to become a better public speaker. And a lot of people read those lists and they don't investigate whether every single thing on them should be gospel or not. My favorite example is across almost every single one of these lists, one of the tips is to speak slowly. If you want to be an amazing public speaker, you have to speak slow. Well, can you imagine if (laughs) I spoke like this the entire <laughs> this is excruciating. Like, it's excruciating right can you yeah. imagine if i spoke like that the entire time so therefore slow cannot possibly be the answer you need to investigate that in fact speaking really fast is an amazing way to build excitement in your presentation and building excitement right. is probably something that you often want to do so take a look at those top 10 lists if you're ever doing any public speaking research on your own i guess to anyone listening and investigate, is this gospel or is there more to it here? And I think people reading those lists as gospel are doing themselves a disservice. Something else, every one of those lists says, don't say um. Well, I'm sure I've said um in this podcast, and I'm a public speaking trainer. It's when you say um every other word that we start running into problems. So relying on the traditional top 10 tips and tricks, I think that's a mistake. And I think having a discussion or having even just internal investigation in your own mind for what good public speaking looks like may or may not match that conventional wisdom. 
That makes a lot of sense. I'm I'm sure there's a lot of things where you could probably do a comedy sketch where you take all the things on those top 10 lists and just put them to the extreme and it would be a, a horrible experience, but probably really funny. Yeah, it would probably be pretty <laughs> painful, right? <laughs> Definitely. Eric, you got to get working on the Netflix special. <laughs> there you go. Wow, we just talked about um, you put it in my head, now I'm stumbling. No, but that's the thing, Ben, is you can <laughs> say um. The very best public speakers say um. Steve Jobs says um, Tony Robbins says um, Michelle Obama says um. Again, it's it's just a problem when you say it 10 times in 10 seconds. But that's sort of what I mean, is that most of these tips, they don't quite get the whole... Definitely. I'll toss in too. Um is actually, I think, I think the official term for um and uh is a natural disfluency. Keyword there being natural. It is a natural disfluency in human language. And what I found super interesting was I was doing some research on artificial intelligence voice bots. Mm, okay. And companies like Google who are, are putting a lot of resources into this stuff, they're actually coding ums and uhs and likes and you knows into their artificial intelligence voice bots. Interesting. To make them sound more natural. Exactly. Because it's a natural disfluency if used a normal amount. It's when it's overused that it becomes disruptive to the flow of language. Interesting. That's really cool. I didn't know that they were doing that, but it but it makes sense the way you describe it. Yeah. And that way, if you ever call to book a haircut somewhere and you're talking to a voice bot, you'll never know because they're going to say like an um and uh. I don't know if I like that, but you know, <laughs> at least they, they'll have done their job, right? Yeah. Going back to the fear concept. So the way I wanted to ask this was that you talked about getting rid of fear or, you know, at least acknowledging that it's a a passive fear, it's not a fear that's going to physically harm you. But the lack of fear, lessening fear doesn't necessarily lead to or result in confidence and being a confident public speaker. So is that confidence something that can be learned? Or is that like a put in your 10,000 hours and you'll you'll get it? What are your thoughts on, on building confidence rather than focusing on fear reduction? I think you sort of have to focus on both. It's sort of a two-part equation. You obviously want to minimize fear to some sort of manageable level. Granted, it will never fully go away. Even me and Eli, who teach this stuff, we experience public speaking fear too. So having it go completely away can't be the goal, but reducing it a little bit or having a new relationship with it is good. Adding confidence is also super, super important. The way that I look at it, and and Eli might have a little bit of a different thought here, but confidence isn't something that people need to learn. Everyone knows what it's like to feel confident. For you, it might be having a beer with your best friend. For someone else, it might be, you know, sitting on a couch watching a movie with their siblings. For another person, it's going on a date with their significant other, whatever. There are scenarios in your life where you are confident. Everyone knows what confidence feels like. Everyone has at least one or two scenarios in their life where they feel that way. So it's not about learning how to be confident. It's about unlocking that same version of you in a scenario where you do feel confident in a new context, being the stage. Interesting. So sort of like thinking back to like a thought exercise, you're thinking back to a certain moment where you feel confident and then trying to recreate that when you're on stage. Is that like an exercise that you would do with with students? Something similar to that. Yeah. I mean, what we do is we try to personify the two different versions of people that exist within their own mind, which is their nervousness, their fear, and their confidence. And in any scenario in your life, one of those versions of you is going to show up. And your job as a public speaker is to make sure that that confident version of you is the one that shows up at least the majority of the time, hopefully every time. Right. Makes sense. I think also the 
confidence exists in people. And a big part of what Eric and I try to do is help them recognize that, identify with that part of them, and then unlock it in a different scenario. But I also do think confidence can be learned. Ultimately, I think confidence is just a feeling of certainty in your ability in some area. And if you try something and you suck at it, and then you're asked to do it again, you'll be less confident. But if you try something and you're good at it, and then you're asked to do it again, you'll feel a little bit more confident in your ability to do it. And the fun thing about teaching public speaking is public speaking isn't actually a skill. It's just a context for a skill that all members of our species happen to have just by proxy of being part of the species, which is communication. Mm -hmm. Like public speaking isn't a different skill. It's just communication in a different context, Right. which means they have all of the prerequisite skill sets to be effective in their own unique way. Because again, there are infinite ways to be effective. And so what we need to teach people is how to tap into that in that other context. But if I were to say to you, Ben, are you are you good at shooting the three-pointer in basketball? <laughs> no. Now, suppose we went and we took a couple lessons and I hired some professional basketball players to teach you proper form, to give you a bunch of really thoughtful exercises. And after a series of, of sessions, you're now started, you're, you're now able to make a couple three-pointers when you play basketball. Right. Are you not feeling a little bit more confident in your ability? Oh, definitely. So then I think it's true that confidence can be learned by improving competence and in the context of public speaking, the competence already exists. So Eric and I don't really have to teach people confidence. We just have to reallocate confidence is a little bit more our approach to things. But in general, I do think confidence can be learned. Interesting. Switching context a little bit to the virtual world, because I know that you guys have been doing this for several years. It's all, as far as I know, at least correct me if I'm wrong, it's always been in person. You know, with COVID, everything's gone 100% remote. I wanted to ask because on my side of things at Catalyst, I've really not spent a lot of much time focusing on virtual events. I've been more focused on like small gatherings and initiatives and things like that. But I just, the magic of an event, I feel like needs to be in person for you to really get your bang for your buck kind of thing and to really have an amazing experience. So, you know, translating that over to the world of public speaking, presenting, you know, giving a talk, is it possible to give an incredible talk over Zoom? Or any other digital tool, I should say. This is a non-partisan uh, podcast. <laughs> I'll, I'll say something concrete that is the same virtually or in person is you have to bring the energy and emotion. If you want your audience to feel excited, then you have to bring that excitement. If you want your audience to deeply internalize an idea, then you have to bring that conviction and you have to bring that passion. And that's true whether you're speaking through a camera over Zoom or Google Hangouts. And that's true when you're, when you're speaking on a stage or in a boardroom. You have to bring the energy and emotion. What's different between in-person and virtual is that when you're in-person and you bring that energy and emotion, you tend to get that energy and emotion back, at least from some subset of your audience. Whereas when you're speaking virtually, even if the audience is experiencing the energy and emotion, you may not be getting it back. If their cameras are off and you're speaking into that virtual black hole, you have to show up anyways. So I think what's the same is you have to bring the energy and emotion. What's different is in person, you can vibe off the, the reciprocal nature of that energy and emotion. But virtually, it's like, no matter what you put in, you ain't getting as much back and you got to bring it anyways. Definitely. I'm, I, I feel that one for sure, especially in uh, cases where there's audio lag or something like that, if I make a joke, but then 
maybe I can't hear people laugh because it's a webinar and everyone else is muted or something like that. It's the most painful thing for me. And I'm like, wait, do they hate me now? Or were they just on mute? But it's, you know, like you said, it's all on you to bring all of the energy and not be able to feed off of the other side, which can be, it's a whole other, a whole other layer of challenge. Totally. Totally. You guys are are getting me fired up. I think I need to go give a talk from my balcony or something like that. Just to, <laughs> I haven't seen other people or let alone given a talk in person in, uh, in over a year. So I'm excited to get back to it. Last couple of questions I wanted to uh, toss at you guys. I think this one I, I was excited to ask because it sort of goes back to the fear thing at the start, right? Getting over fear. We always mess up. We always, people are scared of, you know, what if I say something stupid? What if I do something stupid on stage? You know, it's going to be horrific and embarrassing. First, I want to ask if there's, you know, anything horrific and embarrassing that you guys have done that you can share on stage. But I think, you know, the other reason for me, beyond my own sadistic entertainment, uh, the reason I ask is because I think it's hard for people to know how to react or get past that kind of stuff or move on from it. And usually that's where you can see sometimes presentations take a dark turn, right? Someone says the wrong thing and now they're thrown off the rest of their, their presentation. So would love to hear a story if something comes to mind. And then also a couple, you know, your thoughts, maybe a piece of advice around how to get past something or move past something if you do say or do the wrong thing when you're speaking. I'm very thankful to say that I've never had quite a public speaking failure on the level of, you know, let's say Bill Clinton lying under oath and getting impeached. You know, I, I don't have a true, <laughs> I don't have a true disaster story for you, which I'm thankful for, but I've got all the typical you know, quote unquote, disaster stories that people worry about more day to day. I've experienced having to rely on my slide deck and then the technology stopped working. I've experienced in the Q&A portion of a presentation, once I'm done speaking, I've experienced not knowing the answer to an audience question, even though I probably should have. I've experienced all of those things that people get afraid of. And at first, they were they were pretty paralyzing to me too. You know, if my PowerPoint stopped working, oh my God, well, I was so reliant on that. I forget where I was going to go next. I might as well just quit. I'm going to ruin my reputation. All those thoughts go through my head. But when faced with one of those scenarios, it's all about leaning into it, showing your vulnerability and your humanity and just owning the failure. People love watching people fail if they fail confidently and they don't let it hijack the whole thing. It's well within your rights when you're asked a question in a presentation that you don't know the answer to, to say, great question. I don't know. But <laughs> when you lean into those things like that, I think that's when you get a pretty good reaction from your audience. You get to take a bit of a sigh of relief because you realize, oh, that really wasn't that bad. So, you know, sorry to disappoint that I don't have this huge earth shattering failure story, but I've got all the mini failures that happen to me all the time. And it's all about just leaning in and, and trying your very best not to give a shit because your audience isn't going to be as hard on you as you think in those moments. Right. That's the important thing to remember. I got to just call out one that Eric experienced that he's maybe suppressed in his memory, which is why, which is why it hasn't come up. But, <laughs> but I remember one time Eric and I were running a workshop. Eric, I'm curious if you know where I'm going here. But Eric had a very inconveniently located rip in his jeans. Oh, no. Yeah. And we run, these were in-person workshops at the time, and they were about eight hours long. And I'll tell you what most people would have done. They would have freaked out and tried to speak, basically hiding the chance of somebody even seeing it. And Eric just went forward, just completely dove into it. And 
it was almost like he didn't care at all. And therefore no one in the audience cared. And I'm sure they all noticed, but it just didn't become a focal point. So I think that was a, a fun example of Eric having a little mishap that he totally just leaned into and owned it. And it didn't hijack him or the audience's experience. The last question I'm going to throw at you guys. One thing I always love to ask uh, guests, uh, sometimes I ask them for recommendations of things to watch or to buy, but because you guys are behavior people and you know, in- incredibly talented at what you do. I want to ask you for a life hack that's either work-related or non-work-related, but something that I and our listeners could potentially benefit from. So I heard this one not long ago, and I've started to implement it. And it's not a perfect like life hack, but it's useful. And I'm, I'm liking it so far. The life hack is set a filter in your inbox for any email that contains the word unsubscribe. Hmm. Interesting. And it cleans your inbox up so, so much. It's amazing. What ends up happening is some of the newsletters you've subscribed to because you really like end up going into that. So there may be a secondary filter I may want to put in. But in general, I'm finding it's certainly cleaned out my inbox. Add a filter for unsubscribe in the email. That is a really smart one. Make sure if people, if you do that, that you whitelist Catalyst (laughs) because our emails are awesome and usually contain memes and other great stuff. But that is a really great trick to, uh, yeah, to have a catch-all. I usually allocate like a holiday every year where I just spend six hours on subscribing to everything, but your way sounds much <laughs> less work on my part. And I'm sure, Ben, you could find better things to do on your vacation time, no? Uh, I don't know. That's pretty valuable, but you know. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. For me, Eli's is a little bit more fun. I always just go back to just a very, I guess you could say, deep realization that I had. I- I'm someone who used to... You know, as a kid, I dealt with anxiety issues. As a student and early in my career, I dealt with an exorbitant amount of stress that was just so unnecessary. And in my personal life, I think when I was around 25 or so, I started just becoming obsessed with understanding science and, and more specifically space and the universe and and our place in time and in history. And something became very clear to me, which is that I'm not that significant. I don't really matter that much. And if that's true, well, then so too, my problems don't matter. And I find that that's a really nice grounding perspective to have whenever I feel that stress coming on, whenever something's going on in my personal life or in my or in my professional life that's not so good. If you take a step back and think about your place in this world, in time, in the universe, it becomes pretty clear that everything's going to be just fine. And so maybe not a life hack, but a life perspective that I've found has really helped me find a little more happiness and a little bit less stress just sort of day to day. I love that. Very nice, profound uh, thought to end the uh, today's conversation on. Last thing, if people want to hire you guys, get in touch with you guys, who should they reach out to? Where should they go? Well, they can go to www.speakerlabs.ca to learn a lot more about us and what we do. If you want to learn more about our online course, that's at courses.speakerlabs.ca, both of those links, .ca, not .com. Or if you want to reach out to me personally, I'm pretty talented at responding fast when something pops into my inbox. So eric at speakerlabs.ca, if you want to chat about how we can help you or your teams, we'd love to talk. And you can also follow us on Instagram at speakerlabs. We try to post quick little insights and, and tips and ideas and perspectives about 
public speaking and overcoming fear and presentation skills and storytelling, we try to post that stuff on our Instagram. So check us out at Speaker Labs. Awesome. I'll be following you guys this afternoon. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was great talking to you both. I hope you have a great rest of the day. You as well, Ben. So much fun. Thanks for having us, Ben. Hopefully we can do a part two sometime. There's so much more to cover when it comes to communication and public speaking. It'd be super fun to have another chat at some point down the road. Definitely. In person. Yes. Yes. Hell yes. Let's make it happen. We'll come visit you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave us a review and share this podcast with a friend. If you want to learn more about Catalyst, visit catalyst.io. Until next week, I'm Ben Wynn, and this was NPS I Love You. P.S. I love you. <laughs>